It is time for our official Pixel 4a review, and I'm still a little confused by the whole thing. Plus, it's the debut of our You Review segment, which is exciting. I'm excited. Are you excited? Let's all be excited. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we've got our full review of the Pixel 4a, which is probably the only phone you should buy in 2020. Seriously, this week has seen the Galaxy Fold 2, the Surface Duo, and Moto Razor, and I'm about to tell you you should buy a $350 tiny phone. That's where we're at, people, and we'll get to that. But first, we need to cover the news of the week. Now, before we dive into the news, I wanted to tell you that our next phone coming up for review in two or three weeks is going to be the Blue G90 Pro. We talked about this phone when it launched a couple weeks ago, and it is in our labs as we speak. Now that I'm done with the Pixel 4a review, I'll be sliding into this phone's DMs and taking it for a test drive. Can this phone, with 4GB of RAM, be a gaming phone? I'm going to find out, but this is also your chance to get questions in for our You Review segment, so hit me up at benefitofadowd.com slash contact, or on Twitter at deadtechnology or benefitofdowd. I want to hear your questions, so send them on over. So now, it's news time. Airline pilots have a bit of a problem these days. No one's flying anywhere. And as much fun as it is to burn thousands of gallons of jet fuel flying empty planes back and forth, most airlines are, you know, kind of frowning on that. Instead, we've seen a lot of layoffs and furloughs until this coronavirus stuff can get under control. So in the meantime, pilots could start taking the stick of another flying vehicle, only this one will carry pizza or medication or hats or whatever. Even as airlines see a downturn in business, drone delivery services are starting to pick up. Amazon was the latest company granted FAA approval to start operating a fleet of drones. Now, I'm not saying that there are thousands of jobs available across the country right now, but we could start to see a shift in the industry because plane pilot skills and drone pilot skills are very compatible with each other. So that'll go over really well at those pilot mixers. Hey, Bobby, how was it flying that pizza the other day? Watch out, Sully, we got a new hero here. Yeah, that won't drive pilots absolutely bonkers. I can see this going very, very well. So you remember how a year ago or so, Google got sick of all the leaks and just went out and confirmed all the specs of the upcoming Pixel 45 days in advance? Yeah, Microsoft just did that this week, too, with the new Xbox Series X and Series S both coming on November 10th. Pricing for the units will be $499 and $299, respectively. What's more, you can buy the Series S for $25 per month with Xbox All Access included. The Series X will run you $35 per month, and that's damn good. And I'm not a gamer, but... I'm starting to think about maybe becoming one. Honestly, I'd go for the Series S because A, I'm cheap, and B, I barely have a TV. I think when November 10th rolls around, I'm going to have to take a good long look at it and see if maybe that's something we can wedge in here. Besides, if I do a review of it, it'll be tax deductible. (laughs) 
Then again, that's all I need. Yet another console for my son to get addicted to. Besides, that one working TV is currently in my office, and no, I really don't want him playing Call of Duty next to my ear while I'm trying to write or edit a podcast. So yeah, I'm going to have a lot of hard thinking to do this November. Android 11 dropped this week for Pixels and a few other phones as well. The Pixel 4a in particular was interesting because it dropped just a few days before I wrote my review. As a result, I didn't have a chance to really properly evaluate the software before I had to write the review, but I'm going to talk about that during the review. Some highlights from the update include message bubbles, which are basically chat heads but not from Facebook, and include all messengers. Built-in screen recording is a thing, which is potentially nice, and you can control your smart home from the power button, which is valuable. Like, I mean, the controls are valuable, but the placement of them is kind of weird. Plus, there's some new implementations of the media player controls and the notification shade, which is nice. You can also grant one-time use permissions for things like location. Basically, it's a way to let you get past the setup of an app, and you really don't want them to know your location. Gas buddy. There's a lot more in there, so be sure to check out the link in the show notes for all the details. Supposedly, Android Auto can now work wirelessly with compatible stereos in your cars. I'm not sure what's really considered a compatible stereo, but there you go. And speaking of which, that leads us to our next two stories. Now, I'm only including these stories because I received two Android Auto-related pitches within 12 hours of each other. And the first wasn't really a pitch, but it came from a listener who pointed out this AA wireless dongle that, well, it lets you use Android Auto wirelessly in your car. That seems, I don't know, badly timed? But if you're using a non-Pixel that doesn't have Android 11 yet, this might be a handy device for you to have. The device is available for pre-order on Indiegogo for around $65. And is that worth it to bring wireless Android Auto to your car? I'm not so sure. I'll plug in my phone and I'm fine. The only reason I might want a device like this is in the case of the LG Velvet or V60 no pun intended, which has the dual screen case, which doesn't allow for a good enough connection to maintain Android Auto. And I would suspect that Velvet and V60 owners are a great target audience since, you know, they're willing to pay extra money for an experimental concept that really hasn't been proven yet. Ouch? Maybe ouch, but also not untrue. That being said, I love my dual screen cases, and I won't be ordering this, so maybe I'm not the target audience. Go figure. But that leads us to our next project. Now, this one was a pitch, and all due respect, no thanks. I mean, maybe you're into it, but I'm absolutely not. The link in the show notes takes you to an Indiegogo pre-launch page for a device that I think plugs into your car's power outlet, and you plug the other end into the cable for Android Auto, and the result is an Android operating system, like a full Android operating system where you can install any app from the Play Store and run it in your car. And I say I think because the Indiegogo page isn't really explicit on details, but, you know, there you go. They talk about installing Netflix and running that, but the thing is, as I've said before on this podcast, the whole point of Android Auto is to limit your interactions on a phone and drive more safely while staying connected. This is a terrible, terrible idea on many levels. You're not supposed to have a fully loaded Android operating system in your car's dashboard. That's dangerous and Just no. Plus, it's Android 9, and somehow I doubt this company is going to be real gung-ho on software updates, so overall, just no. Plus, the Indiegogo page doesn't really tell you anything about the dongle except it can run Netflix, and fine, but 
No. Did I mention no? So the crowdfunding crowd is not doing well with me this week, and I'm sorry about that, but just no. And no. This week we learned that next week is going to be very, very busy for me because in addition to another interview with a really cool guest and an embargoed press briefing that I can't talk about, Apple is going to have an event next week. Rumor has it that we won't see a new iPhone. That event will come in October probably. But we're looking at new iPads and a new Apple Watch, which could be cool, except for the fact that you have to use an iPhone to use an Apple Watch, and as cool as the Apple Watch may be... No thanks on the iPhone. By the way, I have some ideas on ways I'll be able to cover that new iPhone and some other phones that I frankly don't have the budget to get on my own, so stay tuned for those. And someone please call the ambulance for Apple and Epic this week. Good lord, I have a nine-year-old daughter, and the drama I get from there ain't nothing compared to the sniping we saw from Epic and Apple this week. We'll start with Epic, because, you know, Epic started it. Tim Sweeney tweeted, quote, Under Apple's monopoly, a decision not to carry a product is a death sentence to that product and shuts out all of its iOS users. A death sentence. Good lord, man. Now, I will grant you that according to WRAL TechWire, who, by the way, I'd never heard of until this story, so take that for what you will, but Fortnite currently has 116 million users on iOS, making it Epic's biggest platform. So yeah, cutting off all those customers is potentially bad for Epic. But it's not a death sentence. There are still millions of other gamers on all the other platforms all trying to buy the latest Captain America skin. And by the way, if anything, Tim Sweeney, this is not a death sentence so much as it is death by suicide because, again, you started this whole thing. Now, this is the hill you want to die on, and to some extent, I respect that. You're trying to make a fundamental change to the way things work, and you're taking a stand to do it. And again, to some extent, I respect that, but goddamn, dude, ease off on the drama accelerator, will ya? Just a touch? Of course, granted, Tim Sweeney is also talking about, quote, a product, so he's not necessarily referring to Fortnite, so, and I can kind of see where he's coming from in that regard. If you're an app developer and iOS decides not to carry your app, if it's an iOS app, yeah, then you're kind of screwed, but if you're an app developer, you have other options too, like... I don't know, Android with its worldwide 85% market share. So, yeah, Tim, on all counts here, you're just kind of, you know, wrong. Or maybe he's just fighting fire with fire because in a separate legal filing this week, Apple retorted with the quote, Epic's actions have caused Apple to suffer reputational harm and loss of goodwill with consumers who rely on Apple to offer the apps they want to download, like Fortnite, with all of the safety, security, and privacy protections that they expect from Apple. This is the part that gets me. Left unchecked, Epic's conduct threatens the very existence of the iOS ecosystem and its tremendous value to your customers. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. Putting aside the fact that reputational harm and loss of goodwill are subjective at best, tremendous value? That's overselling it just a tad. But Epic's conduct threatens the very existence of the iOS ecosystem? Come on! To think that a single app developer represents an existential threat to Apple's precious app store, even if Epic somehow wins this case, 
which a good lawyer actually might, because Apple, you are a monopoly. But even so, Apple will be free to continue to provide an app store to its customers. And I'd be willing to bet that many, many, many developers will stay on board rather than develop their own payment systems and crap. So yeah, Apple, your slice of the pie might be a little bit smaller, but don't worry, I think you'll still be able to pay your bills. Huawei has continued to develop Harmony OS and now has announced Harmony OS 2.0 and it will debut on smartphones next year. Because it kind of has to. I'm not sure anyone realized that the Trump administration would have the staying power necessary to keep Huawei from the US market this long. Hell, he only paid attention to COVID-19 for like three days and that was actually killing voters. So now Huawei is full speed ahead on this new OS you know, so it can still make smartphones. How it plans to do that without other American components, I'm not sure. Last I checked, there were about a dozen US companies that Huawei still relied on to make smartphones. So I'm not sure how that's gonna change, but all the same, Huawei seems to have the OS area covered. But does it though? I'm just having trouble imagining a whole other operating system actually existing in the smartphone space. Again, in China, this isn't really too much of a problem because Users there are used to not having Google services and work around all of it quite nicely. And the Chinese government can force Chinese developers to make Harmony OS apps. Okay, so they probably can't really, or at least I have no proof that they can, even though they probably can. But anyway, we've seen this movie and it usually doesn't end well. Microsoft tried it and Microsoft couldn't get it to catch on. So we think Huawei will be able to? Stay tuned, because it'll be interesting to see if they can stick it out. And it'll still be interesting to see a third smartphone operating system, even if it is probably doomed to failure. And speaking of which, CNBC reports that China would rather see TikTok shut down U.S. operations than force a sale to an American company. Yowza! Not sure if that's going to happen, or if ByteDance happens to agree with that philosophy, but... Okie dokie, China. The thing is, I'm still dubious that Trump can even make this shutdown happen in the first place. Executive order or no, how are you going to stop people from downloading apps? Unless you want to go all China on us and force the removal from the app stores. And China, I can see doing that, but I don't see that flying so well in the U.S. The main problem here is that China recently banned the sale of AI to the U.S. and the algorithm that TikTok uses to suggest content is a form of AI. So if... Wallosoft or Micromart were to buy TikTok, it would be buying it without the engine that makes that particular car go. I also can't imagine that that would go over well. Honestly, personally, I've only recently started getting into TikTok as kind of a work thing, and it's a fun little platform. I wouldn't even be surprised to see a benefit of a doubt TikTok account in the not-too-distant future. But I can assure you that before I put any time or any effort into such an endeavor, I want to make sure that the service is you know, actually going to still be around. So stay tuned, we'll know more next week. And finally, Motorola dropped the wraps around its new Razer 5G this week. The folding phone is much improved over its last generation with a more solid hinge, tighter fitting screen, better build materials, and updated internals. Basically, this is an LG Velvet that folds in half and has an outer screen. Hands-on impressions are largely positive. Motorola is checking a lot of boxes with this new release. Most notably, this phone is available on carriers other than Verizon. And that alone is a significant upgrade because Moto and Verizon have been in bed together much too long for my taste over the years. 
One side note to this device comes from David Ruddock at Android Police, who reported that not only did they not get their hands on a review device, but they were told to just go ahead and buy one from Motorola and, uh, what? How about new? So, I guess Moto just doesn't care about reviews? Michael Fisher, MKBHD, and CNET all had good things to say about it, so ultimately we'll see how things shake out. And again, no budget, so you won't be hearing about it from me, I'm sorry to say. So guess what finally happened this week? The embargo on reviews for the Surface Duo dropped, and review after review poured out, all saying basically the same thing. Now, before we get into what those reviews actually said, I'm going to let Dieter Bone from The Verge say what we're all thinking. This is trying to be a different kind of thing, an entirely new kind of thing, not just a phone or a tablet. See, Microsoft has a very, very big idea it is trying to pull off with this dual-screen Android device. This $1,400 Android device, that is ultra-flagship territory. That is a big idea with a very big price tag. Which means that this is the big time, Microsoft. I hope you brought your A-game. Now, here's the thing. If you're going to watch any review of the Surface Duo, go ahead and fast-forward to the hardware part. Why? Because we know the hardware is amazing, which is great, but it's all Microsoft allowed reviewers to actually show you up until now. If Microsoft has shown anything with the Surface line of laptops, it's that it knows how to build a great-looking machine. From a Surface tablet to the Surface Book to the Surface PC, they're all really gorgeous and amazing machines to look at, hands down. No question at all, but there is a caveat here, as explained by Joanna Stern of the Wall Street Journal. So if Microsoft fixed all the software bugs tomorrow, this would be a dream device? Not quite. There are just as many scenarios, if not more, where it doesn't make sense to have two screens. And definitely not two screens that fold on top of each other. So we're going to put all this aside because this is a gorgeous device. And according to Microsoft, it's totally not a phone. You can, in the words of Michael Fisher, force it into that configuration, but it's not really meant to be that. So... What gives with that embargo? Well, it turns out the software on this device is... not awesome. The opinions online range from half-baked to a dumpster fire, and it's not just coming from reviewers who got one in advance. This is also coming from reviewers who bought it because they couldn't outplay, outwit, and outlast in Microsoft's little Survivor game. The software is buggy as all hell, and what makes everything better... But also a lot worse is that a same-day update that Microsoft pushed out to the phones actually makes things better. So I can't even imagine how bad the software was when Microsoft actually put it into reviewers' hands and said, here you go, have fun! I mean, there is the old saying that you can't let perfect get in the way of done, but come on, guys, you can let not crappy get in the way of done. That's actually recommended. So, what are the software bugs? Well, gestures are a big one. Sometimes gestures just don't work at all. Swiping up from the bottom has a couple of different functions depending on where you are in the software. It can let you dismiss an app or go to a multitasking interface, but often just nothing happened. Like the phone just like froze up and sat there saying, nope, 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 nope. Other times the screen actually kind of wigged out like static or interference. And it's, it's hard to describe, but basically it looks like the screen was actually starting to fail. But then you close the phone and reopen it and hey, everything's great. And this is, like, all the time. It's insane that this thing is available for sale right now because this is all software, and that's why Microsoft is pushing out updates. But it's buggy, laggy, 
crappy software that doesn't belong out of an alpha test, let alone a beta or actually a production release. This is just really bad, and the dang thing costs $1,400. That's not really bad so much as it's an aggressive slap in the face for anyone who actually bought one of these things. Oh, and the camera? Crap on the cracker. So let's just move past that. It's really hard, but let's move past that. What is this phone? Well, it's a, not a phone that is attempting to create a new space in mobile. This is meant to be a small, portable productivity machine. And in that sense, I can see where Microsoft is going with this. But I keep going back to Joanna Stern pointing out that two screens is great. Except for, you know, all the times that you don't want two screens. The phone is thin enough that you can use it a single screen at a time, but it's wide enough that it's actively hard to do. Dieter Bone points out that foldables in general seem like companies want you to be more deliberate when you're on your phone, like pick it up, complete a task, and then close it and move on. Maybe that's something we could all use a little more of. So in that sense, I will applaud Microsoft for trying something really neat and different. But this Gen 1 device is borderline unusable as it stands today. But I'm going to let Michael Fisher take us out on a positive note here, if there is a positive note to be found. Almost every first-generation product is a risky buy. Just look at those foldables I love. The first Galaxy Fold was rushed to market and got recalled. The first Motorola Razr Revival had enough compromises that even I held off buying one. It's only now that we're seeing wave two of those products, with the Razer 5G and Fold 2 showing early signs of greatness, that we can look back and say, you know, I sure am glad I didn't write off that whole category just because the first attempts were shaky. So here's looking forward to the Surface Duo 2. And now we're going to move on to a phone that you should buy in 2020. In fact, even if you already have a phone, you should probably still buy this one in 2020. Let's move on to our official Pixel 4a review. As I sit down to write this script, I'm struck with two opposing viewpoints that I'm having trouble reconciling in my head. The first is that I love this phone. The Google Pixel 4a is a remarkable little phone that I think has a great chance of being my daily driver for quite some time. The second is, there's nothing about this phone that I can hold up and show everybody. You see, this is why I like this phone. And while I wonder aloud how this can even be possible, we're going to get through this together because me trying to figure it out will be my full review of the Pixel 4a. So let's go see if we can figure this thing out. Something I need to get off my chest right from the start. This is a $350 phone. So before we get all goo-goo, there's nothing, absolutely nothing, not a thing that this phone does that at least one phone out there that exists can do as well or in most cases better. But this is a $350 phone. And despite the fact that this phone doesn't outperform any other phone out there, this is arguably my favorite phone that I've used this year which includes, in no particular order, the LG Velvet, the iPhone SE, the LG V60, and the TCL 10 Pro, and whatever the hell phone I was using before I launched this podcast. So what is it about this phone that makes it so good? Honestly, 
I think a little bit of it is expectation. I haven't used a Pixel phone since the Pixel 2, and even that was a brief stint that only lasted about a month. And since then, Google has done a lot to the Pixel to make it a better phone and better experience. And I hang out with nerds, so when nerds all nerd out about Google's phone, you know, I get a little jelly. But now that I'm one of the cool kids and neener neener, I have a Pixel, so I admit, right off the bat, that might be part of it. I'm also thankful that I don't have to deal with Soli or face recognition because, of course, this phone has a fingerprint sensor on the back. I also don't lock my phone much because I have a smartwatch and smart lock enabled, so most of the time, I don't even have to unlock the phone. And since we're talking about hardware, let's just get right into it. This is a Snapdragon 730G processor with 6GB of RAM and 128GB of storage that you can get in any color you want, as long as it's black. There's a 12.2 megapixel rear camera, which, oh yeah, we're gonna talk about that camera. And there's also a front-facing 8 megapixel selfie camera, and that's it. A phone in 2020 came out with only two cameras on it. And actually, I guess that's not a weird thing. I can think of at least two other phones that also did, but whatever, it's still a little weird. This is all powered by a microscopic 3,140 milliamp hour battery, which we will also talk more about later. And it all lies below a 5.8 inch FHD plus OLED display that is quite pretty and just about the right size for my sausage sized fingers. There are stereo speakers on the top and bottom and there's a headphone jack. On the side, there are three buttons, volume down, volume up, and power in that order. And by the way, that's the wrong order. I ran an informal poll on Twitter about where the power button should be, and opposite side of the volume rocker won 50% of that vote, and 32.5% voted for below the volume rocker. So from a hardware perspective, that's my one major annoyance. The other one is the camera bump on the back, which holds a solitary camera, and it's a camera bump, so you know, it sucks, but whatever, I guess. I also get a kick out of the two bottom-firing speaker grills, only one of which actually has a speaker behind it. Uniformity in design for the win. The fingerprint sensor on the back is baller, of course, because it's not under a screen, so that's a win by itself. But the divot in which the sensor resides is very shallow, sometimes making it hard to find the sensor by feel. Of course, since the world put cases on their phones, that's not really that big of an issue. And while we're talking about cases, check out our Tech Yeah segment on the Zag. Not a sponsor, but it is an affiliate link, so it's kind of. Aside from that, the phone is really thin and light, and the power button has a greenish-white accent color, which is a nice touch. The entire backplate has a really great-feeling soft-touch coating on it, which I really loved for about six seconds before I put that Zag case on it, because I am an amazing klutz. I need to mention that there's no IP rating nor wireless charging on this phone, but it's $350, and if you think this is the last time I'm going to mention the price tag, you are sadly mistaken. Aside from that, I would have liked to see more colorways for this phone. I mean, it's black and it's fine, but really? Nothing else? Even the iPhone came in red. With the great designs and colorways I've seen from Pixels and Nexus phones in the past, black is just boring. But alas, we move on. So let's talk about the software, which is genuinely the part I was most excited to write about, but there is a huge caveat here. I should note that Android 11 dropped two days before I wrote this review, so I haven't had a chance to test out most of the features in Android 11. I may refer to a neat thing here or there, but for the most part, when I'm talking about the software, 
it's going to be Android 10, which is good because I've had a couple of intermittent hiccups with the software since installing Android 11, which I'm not positive are because of the phone or the software. Most reviewers and other folks I've talked to are solid with Android 11, so I think a reset is in my future. All the same, I'll follow up with a proper look at Android 11 in a few weeks once I've had a chance to use it for a while. So the software? It's just awesome. Unfortunately, before setting up my phone, I didn't get a chance to look at just how little software the phone actually came with. It was like the Google suite, and that's it. And that's really a refreshing experience. Then I had to go install my 165 apps or whatever later, and here we are. I actually had to create a Google folder manually because I've gotten so used to it on other devices. And what's funny is the contents of that Google folder were the only apps on the phone at the start. So what's it like using Android in the way Google intended? Well, I gotta tell you, it's pretty great. Right off the bat, I should mention that up until now, I had fought the gesture trend. I always went back to the utility belt of the back, forward, and multitasking buttons. But with this phone, I figured, screw it. This is Google's game, may as well play by its rules. And overall, gestures are just okay. Back is intuitive, swipe up to go home is not bad, even if it is frustrating for other more laggy phones that you'll hear about in a couple of weeks, spoiler alert. The multitasking swipe up and hold garbage is garbage and needs to be something else. I don't know what, but that's not my job. And the swipe up from the corner thing to access Google Assistant is nice. The love handles, as we used to call them on the Android Authority podcast. I love the always-on display and the double-tap to wake, and I love the date, calendar, and weather widget that isn't a widget at the top of the home screen. I do not like the Google search bar at the bottom. I really want to be able to put that where I want it. And don't get me wrong, I have a Google search bar in every phone that I use, but I put it at the top, and that's where I like it. Now get off my lawn. The Google feed is off to the left where it belongs forever, all OEMs I'm talking to you. The settings are nicely organized, and notifications have gotten even nicer in Android 11. There's a current Android reference for you. I'm particularly digging the media player option and the ability to reroute the audio to a specific device. That is so overdue, I can't even tell you. I started using the bedtime feature, which basically turns your phone grayscale at a certain time. Mine's at midnight, and I don't know if this is an Android 11 feature, but I only found this in the past couple of days, but the ability to snooze the bedtime... Also a nice addition. Admittedly, I'm old, so I wasn't really up past midnight all that often, so I didn't really go looking for a way to snooze it before. In the last couple of days, I found it, so I wasn't sure if it was already there, and let's face it, anytime I went for it, it was after midnight and I was freaking exhausted anyway. Other software highlights are those that are particular to the Pixel line. Call screening is one that has both a good side and a bad side. On the one hand, it saved me from picking up dozens of likely spam phone calls, despite the fact that I'm on T-Mobile's fancy new no-spam network. T-Mobile. The voice transcription on call screening, well, it's, it's cool, but it's not great. And the experience of being call screened is also not great, as my aunt learned when she called me from a number I didn't recognize while I was in the middle of a bike ride. The call screener prompts for a name and then basically just waits for as long as your party will wait, which in the case of my aunt was a really long time because she's a sweetheart and she was chatting with other people in the room. But right off the bat, Google got the transcription wrong because she said her name and Google did not show me her name, so I couldn't stop and answer the call. So Google, you have some work to do there. Live Transcribe is also really solid with good accuracy, but it's also a little floopy when you start reading names that aren't Kanye West or Donald, um, Donald Sutherland. Yeah, totally meant Sutherland. 
And Google's processing is also really fast, which makes it useful. I didn't use it a whole hell of a lot, but when I did, it worked pretty well. Sorry, it just wasn't in my workflow. Plus, let's talk about the ultimate in software, updates. Yes, Geeks loves them some updates. Hell, I got this phone two weeks ago, and it already has Android 11, so that's pretty sweet. But not only that, this phone will get three years of software updates, and that's pretty huge, Though, thankfully, it's becoming less and less rare. Some OEMs promise one OS upgrade, and that's it. Buy a phone next year, noob. But others will go two years, maybe? Honestly, in the world of Android, it's a mixed bag as to what kind of software you're going to get. With this phone, it'll last you a good three years, and that's pretty awesome. That's like $115 per year. Of course, will this phone be useful in three years? That's an entirely different conversation. But the fact remains, if you want Android 13 on a phone that you buy in 2020, Google is really the only game in town. Moving on to performance, and again, this is hard to gauge because the day I installed Android 11, the Pixel kind of freaked out on me a few times when I was trying to get things done and trying to get them done in a hurry because of course I was and because of course it did. The performance issues have been very intermittent. Even before the Android 11 upgrade, the main times I had trouble and hiccups and stutters was in the phone app, which is just weird. Often it was while I was trying to handle two calls at once, like I would call my wife and go to voicemail and she would call me back right away. It seemed like the phone just couldn't handle that very well. Everything else was pretty rock solid. Even playing games like Call of Duty Mobile performed... Well, okay, not great, but decently. I'm not saying I want to make this a gaming phone. Definitely not. But I could manage a more hefty game like that on occasion if I really needed to. Anyway, this is not a gaming phone, so don't get any ideas. As for numbers, Geekbench comes in at 494 on a single-core test and 1478 on multi-core. It's not amazing, of course, but it's not supposed to be. This is a $350 phone. I think... Yeah, yeah, I think I might have mentioned that already. So this is not going to be a champ, but that's okay because what this phone does, it does really well. But I'm hanging an asterisk on this one because, again, with Android 11, this phone hiccuped on me a time or two since the update, so I'll address that in the coming weeks. What I can say is that aside from the phone foibles, which are intermittent as hell, by the way, they're not constant, so aside from those... This phone runs like a champ at anything I asked it to do, so even if Android 11 did degrade the performance any, I can't imagine it'll sour my opinion much, if at all. Aren't intermittent issues just the best? So now we need to talk about the camera, and what is there to say except, it's pretty damn great. Now, I will start this off by saying, when I was taking some product photos the other day, I actually leaned more towards what the LG V60 was capturing as opposed to the Pixel. The LG V60 has cooler tones, which is what I was kind of going for in those photos. That being said, I could have done very well with what the Pixel was giving me, especially when it comes to night sight and astrophotography mode. So let's talk about those first. Night sight and astrophotography mode are part of the same night mode. If you're aiming at the sky, and if you're not moving, the phone will auto-switch to astrophotography mode. I kind of don't like that, because there are times that you're doing exactly that, and it just doesn't come on. There are other times when I'm just trying to take a night sight shot, and the phone is just like, Oh yeah, that's going to take three minutes, I hope you brought a beer, punk. So, I get what Google's going for here. Like, it's going to know what's going to get really good results, you know, night sight or astro mode. If you're trying to handhold astro mode, 
that's not going to end well but you're also going to dislike the experience so when you have a good idea of what's going on and you want to make the decision to try to take an astro photo or you want to not take an astro photo google's all like nah you gotta wait well that's annoying but the results are pretty great. Unfortunately, anywhere within 200 miles of the city of Chicago is going to give you a great deal of light pollution, as I discovered on a late night trip out to the boonies. Not to mention, when you get there and you're standing there waiting for three minutes to take a photo by the side of the road by a cornfield, you know, you get a little nervous wondering when the banjo toady natives are gonna show up. And are the results worth it? Absolutely! I was able to snag a few good shots before my paranoia got the better of me. Never did get out there with the astronomy club I signed on with. Hmm. The weekends around here have not been very sky-watching friendly, so I had to do my trips during the week. Anyway, one of my most proud shots came without astrophotography mode at all. I grabbed a gorgeous night sight shot of the clouds with Jupiter and Saturn peeking out from behind the clouds, and that was all done handheld. Hell yeah, it took 20 seconds to grab the night shot, and even handheld, this is a great shot, and honestly, I'm a little in love with it, and I'm a little sad that Neowise made its exit before I got this phone. Say la vie. Now, what's weird about the Pixel 4a, there's no manual mode or pro camera mode. You have no control over aperture, exposure, etc., which honestly feels really weird in 2020. As much as Pixel phones are known for their photography, this just seems like a miss. But then again, maybe Google figures it's better at photography than you are anyway. Fair. Harsh. But fair. So the core experience here is to just point, shoot, and love the results, and that's exactly what you get. You get good color representation, though they might be a tad on the warmer side. Google's not a fan of shadows, so if you're looking to keep those around, you're going to be disappointed. Especially since, again, there's no pro mode. You cannot override what Google wants. Google basically just wants you to point and shoot and not worry about silly little details like that. And for the most part, the photos come out really great. Colors are vibrant. Earth tones are maybe a little greener than they were in real life. But it doesn't go full Samsung, and I think we could be pretty happy about that. As for video, the stabilization is pretty awesome. I'm not talking GoPro awesome or even a gimbal awesome, but you can get steady shots in situations like a walk and talk or handheld walking shots. You're not going to be doing manual pans or anything, but the stabilization is quite good. The phone is capable of shooting 4K video at 30 frames per second and 1080p at 30, 60, and 120 frames per second with electronic stabilization. As for the rest of the photo modes, they're pretty great. I was excited to find out you can do photo spheres with the Pixel, so kudos to you, Google, for keeping them alive. Portrait mode is solid. This is one of the best phones I've seen catching outlines in portrait mode. There are still some foibles, hashtag hair is hard, but overall, it's really solid. Basically, the camera story of this phone is it's good to great, and Google says you should love it, so love it! And finally, battery life, and I'm happy to say... This phone is a battery pro. In two weeks of use, I never had to top off the phone prior to bedtime, which happened anywhere between 10 p.m. and midnight. And that's after waking up at 7.30 a.m. Of course, my use case will vary from yours, and that's not really a good indicator of battery life. But honestly, very little is a good indicator of battery life. If you want some numbers, I'll tell you that I peaked out at about five hours of screen on time, with an average hovering just over four. When I hit the sack at midnight, the phone had anywhere between 15 to 25% left in the tank, and this was my primary phone for emails, Slack, browsing, videos, and more. This is all very highly subjective. Will you be able to game all day on this phone? No. But you can get through a productive day and not worry about getting to your charger at night. 
I know, that's some hard science there, right? Leave me alone. And now we get to the new section of reviews called the You Review. And right off the bat, one of our earliest questions comes from the website from, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Hayim. Would you buy this phone or a used flagship from last year, like the OnePlus 7, OnePlus Pro, OnePlus T, and the LG G8 at the same price? Well, I did buy this phone, so there you go. But no, I get what you're asking. First of all, we're assuming that a flagship from last year will be $350, and that's an allowable assumption. It's your question, after all. So given those factors, it's a close duel, to be honest. If you're most interested in camera... Then the Pixel, absolutely. Wouldn't question it at all. If you're into something more like gaming, it's more of a toss-up, but I think the Snapdragon 855 will power most games better than the 730G in this guy. But if you're not a gamer, or at least not a Call of Duty Fortnite gamer, I'd grab this phone. With three years of updates, this phone will be up to date for a long time, and you're not going to see that from a OnePlus or an LG. And by the way, speaking of the camera, coming in from dumb username, we have a similar question. Is it worth buying the 4A and keeping your current phone or trading in your current phone and getting a regular Note 20 for $350? Also a good question. And to answer, I'm just going to say I don't think anybody should buy a regular Note 20. (laughs) Maybe for $350, but that kind of depends on the phone you're giving up. What I will say is that the best reason to buy a Samsung flagship in this humble reviewer's opinion, is to get that great camera, and the Pixel has a great camera. You won't get Samsung's party tricks like optical zoom, which can be handy and is certainly less gimmicky than on the S20. But if you get the Pixel, you also have your other phone as, I don't know, a backup? But it also depends on what that other phone is. It's got to be pretty great if you're going to get the Note 20 for $350. So maybe just keep that one. And from Meister, how does it perform? Are you noticing any slowdowns? Okay, well, I covered that in the review, but generally performance on everyday tasks is great. I need to play with it a little bit on Android 11 to make a final call, so to that one, I'm just going to say tune in in the next three weeks or so. And finally, from Anonymous, or they just forgot to sign, whatever, we have Do You Miss Soli and the Squeeze Gesture from the Pixel 4? Well, no. Well, no and a half, actually. I don't miss Soli at all, and in fact, on this platform, I have openly mocked Soli. It's a half-baked gesture thing that was a gimmick at best, and at worst, it was partially responsible for the Pixel 4's crappy battery life. As for squeezing, I mean, not really. Squeezing your phone to perform an action is not something I generally do, so it's kind of hard to miss what I've never had. And before we get too far in the weeds, I should fess up that I never had a Pixel 4, so I can't really say I don't miss Soli because I never had Soli, but I heard it was crap, so I'm going with that. The squeeze would be nice for sure, but not enough to deal with that crap battery and, oh, by the way, $400 more. So that's our You Review segment, and I love those questions, and I hope we get even more. Our next phone coming up for review is a gaming phone from Blue, the Blue G90 Pro. So start sending in those questions. This is a gaming phone with 4 gigabytes of RAM, and if you can't think of 5 questions off the top of your head, you're not even trying. And so that's going to close out our official review of the Pixel 4a. This is my favorite phone of the year so far, and I really haven't figured out why still. I've laid out a lot of great reasons, but none of them are really standout features that are going to sell this phone. It's a collection of basics and basically no compromises, and that's really the thing here. This is a really good phone for an amazing price in a year that we all want to forget 
Except that 2020 is the year that brought you the benefit of a doubt podcast. Well, it also brought you the Pixel 4a. And yes, this is my recommendation for anyone looking for a cheap Android phone. That's the end of the list. But they still can't really tell you why. It just does everything really well, and there's very little flash here, and that's okay. At $350, you don't need a folding screen or a second screen or 50x zoom. You just need to know that the phone can do everything, and this one can. And you need to know that there are few, if any, compromises, and that's this phone too. They say the hardest reviews to write are for your favorite phones, and yeah, this review is very hard to write, indeed. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'd like to thank Google for not sending me a Pixel 4a review device and for not giving me one clear standout reason to like this damn thing. And I'd like to thank Mr. Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes. But as always, most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs>